The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about the adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present moment. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want to be— I want to be clear that um, in this section, I'm really just talking about what is relevant to being overcomers, specifically in relationship to the Holy Spirit, relative to the present crisis. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached through chapters 6 through 8 in Romans, he preached 144 sermons. Because there's so much there, so please don't think I'm going to cover everything that's expositionally here, okay? I, I did want to tell you this um, about— our church, as, it wasn't part of the announcement, but I wanted to put it in this. This is our church staff meeting. Everybody on the staff is spending their time not showering, but working really hard to support people with their spiritual needs. And um, I know every single one of them is thankful um, that they have a job right now. And also that because they have a job, they can give themselves um, in all of this time to ministering and helping others and providing for spiritual needs and helping people. And um, so I'm just, I want to say I'm thank, thankful to that. And please know that we're here to help you because everybody is on board. Okay. Um, I hear people say a lot, this statement, it doesn't matter. I hate that sentence. Not when we're choosing a restaurant or a movie. I hate it when I hear it from somebody who I know is dealing with hurt and disappointment. Whether as a parent or a pastor, whenever I hear that sentence, it makes my blood run a little bit cold because I know that the statement, it doesn't matter to the hurt human heart feels like a resolution to problems, like a way of handling things that is in some way healthy by resigning ourselves to reality. But in, in reality, it's really a form of escapism and gloom. It is a form of losing hope and not dealing with things. That kind of, it doesn't matter, is really the way people lose themselves. It's a display of a loss of heart 
in the great struggle that we all have against this world that isn't the way it should be. That chorus echoes in the human heart in all times of difficulty that the world isn't the way it should be. The world shouldn't be this way. And when the it shouldn't be this way hits you like waves over and over again and creates a sufficient level of hurt and disappointment, the normal human response to that kind of pain is to not continue to fight and to not continue to stand and to not continue to hope, but to just say, it doesn't matter. We are, according to Romans 8, subjected to futility and enslaved to decay as part of creation. That's part of what Christians call the curse. And in youth— realizing that for the first time, it produces something we call angst. And in midlife, it produces something we call a crisis. And in older life, it creates a kind of sourness and resentment in people, older people who can't take relish in the new shoots of life coming up all around them. Our reaction to this pain and disappointment under futility and decay is what this passage calls groaning. What it does, that we, you might call it all kinds of things. This passage calls it groaning, that creation groans, and that we, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, are still subject under this decay, the curse, and it causes in us groaning. Everything seems to be against our natural hopes. The way we want our lives to turn out, the way we want things to be. Even if you get the what you want, even if you're the kind of person like, I, Nick, I, I've gotten most of what I want. Yeah, but— in time, sand will bury it. And in time, death will decompose it. And vines will grow over it. And it will be no more. And there will be a sadness to the thing you had for just a moment. The wife of your youth. Your moment in the sun. This work you did that was so important that's forgotten the moment after you retire. Or your legacy that is not remembered a few years after you die. This punishing, discouraging futility unto the decay of death is what Christians have called for, for long eons the curse. The curse. We call it that for two reasons. One is because the saying that the world is subjected to the curse affirms the human internal programming that cannot be taken away that the world isn't supposed to be this way. To say it doesn't matter is oftentimes laid in the secular presumption of irreligion that states that the reason why it doesn't matter is because there is no should. <laughs> There's only is. And if that's the way the world really is, then it doesn't matter. The world is only under a curse. The, only, the world is only not as it should be if the world should be some other way. And to say the world is under the curse is to say that there was an intention for this world and there may be an end of this world that isn't this way, that is the way it should be, and that this isn't normal, and that this is, in the very long view, temporary. And secondly, knowing that something is the curse in incantational language means that the curse can be broken. There's something about a curse that it has a, a hold, but it has—there's a way it could be impermanent. There's a way it could be undone. There is a hope. There's a, there's a way out. There's some way to overcome the curse. 
And so that's why Christians refer to our struggling under the futility of this life and in the decay of this life as life under the curse. And in order for us to deal with it and to handle it properly, we have to, we have to receive a certain kind of hope from God, this passage teaches us, and a certain kind of help from God. Because otherwise, our experience with the curse will ultimately close out the light of hope. It will close out our hearts to feel the joys of life because they only feel like something when they have meaning and they matter, right? It'll weaken our courage to face challenges and it will dim our eyes to see beauty and glory all around us. We have to receive some kind of help and hope in Christ and through the Spirit to become the overcomers we were meant to be. And if we don't, we will fall into what Christians have called over the ages gloom. Gloom is what happens when the curse is seen as the final explanation. That everything really is meaningless and there is no end and there is nothing to hope past what's going to happen and it doesn't matter. And the, the open light of the end of the tunnel closes into full darkness and you are lost. And this is one of the reasons why gloom often spiritually precedes things like suicide and all sins against hope. Because it is by definition the final loss of hope. It doesn't have to be permanent, but it is the state of no hope. So, if in the midst of the curse, the universal experience of all human beings in the present time, how do we, in the, in the words of the sermon last week, seek the mind of the Spirit? How do we seek to escape the wretchedness of the flesh and live the new life of the Spirit as overcomers, as more than overcomers, or more than conquerors, is the language of Romans 8, in the Spirit. How do, we, how do we do that, right? What I said last week was, oh, before I, I give that answer, which is going to be thrilling, um, it's important to realize what happens at funerals. Okay, I remember this. I've been in a lot of funerals because I'm a pastor, and when you hang out with people who are acutely grieving, right, um, people often reject any answer to the questions of why or to make sense of their suffering because they feel like every answer to their groanings is some kind of sin against their loss. Because if their pain, if there's a reason for their pain or an answer to the dynamic of their pain, it, they feel like it somehow lessens their pain and then therefore lessens the meaning of the loss, which is false. But that's what pain says to the human heart. And so anything you say to somebody who is under deep grief and the deep groanings, whether of the curse or some episode of the curse of loss and disappointment, whatever you say is often going to sound too trite on one side, too simple, or too severe, and too heavy-handed. And the, the, the answer that the, the gospel gives and that scripture gives in this, in this case to the hurting heart, if you don't receive it with humility and faith, is going to sound both too trite and too severe. And so you have, to, you have to open yourself up to receive what God will say, knowing that in the grief and groanings of the curse, our tendency is to reject every statement of meaning and purpose and truth as too trite or too severe. 
The heart of the answer is found here in Romans 8, 15 to 18. Let me read it again for you. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption into sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, those are two critical words, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See, what he's saying is, in the midst of the curse, because of Christ and the Spirit, we have been made, by the Spirit, sons and daughters of God himself. And the Spirit actually testifies subjectively inside of us to help assure us that we are actually the children of God, that that's a real thing. And to the extent to which it's a real thing, children are heirs. And God is not the heir of corruption and futility. And Christ is not the heir of corruption and futility. Christ is the heir of resurrection and life. Because his Father, God, is the God of resurrection and life. He is above the curse, and he is the God over creation. And it says in this passage that he was the one that subjected creation to this curse with a hope that he would reveal in its proper time, that we would be liberated from our bondage to this decay. And so would all of creation. But what's really important to recognize here is when he says that about us being co-heirs with Christ, he says, if indeed, in Greek, the word used there is an intensifier of a conditional. So like, if you say just if, so I'll go to the store if you meet me at two o'clock, right? I might not go to the store if you don't meet me at two o'clock, right? It's a conditional. Through this passage, there have been a few light conditionals, if, 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 right? In this verse, it uses an intensified conditional. You had better not think this is going to happen if you don't fulfill the criteria, okay? It says, if indeed, is the way it's, it's translated in English. We share in his sufferings. And then it uses the purpose statement, in order that, right? That is, we participate in his sufferings so that, in order that, to produce the outcome that we might share in his glory. Why? Because if we're heirs, we're sons and daughters. But if we're sons and daughters of a king who has a particular kingdom, then we are called all the more to be citizens of that kingdom and to live according to that kingdom. And what Jesus inherited under the curse was misunderstanding, futility, disappointment, and murder. That's what, that's what he experienced in his redemptive work under the curse as the son of the father who is king over all and bringing redemption into the curse. What he experienced as his inheritance in this life was those things. And through those things, received the name that was above every name. Through his resurrection to be the savior of the world, the firstborn over all of redeemed creation. And we follow in that path of the cross that leads to that same path glory. Do you see how it can feel both too trite and too severe? You're an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. You're going to heaven. Everything is going to be bathed in the glory of God forever. Death has no sting. Well, Nick, that's too good to be true. And you will only experience it if indeed you walk the way of the cross and all the sufferings of Christ, embracing them with the boast of the hope of the future glory of God, to which you say that's far too severe. 
Yeah, yeah. And if God had not become man in the person of Jesus Christ to literally do it in front of our faces, to walk before us in every act of it, then we would have more purpose in our doubt about it. Right? Okay. I want to quickly look at two things about how God promises a path to overcome these things in the curse. The first is, is that the Spirit cultivates our hope and glory. That's how the Spirit does this work. He cultivates our hope and glory. So, one of the results of gloom is that it, it makes it so we won't lift our eyes to God and trust. We just won't. It's the version of the dark night of the soul where we have no hope even in God. And yet in order for us to overcome all that we face in disappointment and decay, we have to look to something much greater than it, right? The apostle says about this, he says in verse 18, because I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We had this, I had this experience with my wife fairly recently where someone, because we were showing hospitality and helping someone, reamed out my wife for having contact with somebody in this present pandemic, right? And this person had been harboring a certain kind of anti-Christian bigotry in their heart, and it, it slipped out because they lost their cool, and they said, well, I'm sure that if it all goes bad, that God will protect you, right? It was just an ugly moment for this person and, and uncharacteristic because of the stress that everybody's under. But it, it, it went to show that there is, there is this normal bigoted idea that is also found among ignorant Christians, that if, that the way we handle the futility of the curse is that if we obey God, God will alleviate the problems of the curse right now. That like, that right now, like in, in, in the COVID epidemic, like if we obey God, we won't get it. That's not what this says at all. That's not true. That's, and that's not what I believe. If I believe, I mean, I'm gonna take every precaution I can to protect my family from any kind of disease, but I also may believe I have moral duties before God. And if I do those and I take a risk, it's not because I believe God's going to protect me from harm. It's because I believe that if I die, I will be raised with Christ in the end after death destroys me and my children. It's not some, it's not some trite idea where I think nothing's going to, nothing's bad's going to happen to us. Everything bad is going to happen to us. The only thing bad that isn't going to happen to us because we're Christians is that if we follow the Lord in godliness, a lot of self-inflicted harm and pain we'll be saved from because we won't inflict it on ourselves, because we'll walk in accordance with God's path of flourishing. And so in many ways, our lives will flourish. But we're subject to all the aspects of the curse, like pestilence and disease, and aging and death and difficulty in relationships and all kinds of things. And in addition to that, Jesus says, if people hated me, they will hate you. There's an additional load of persecution that's either light or intense based on where you live and what's happening at that time. But there's almost always a cost to be paid to really be a believer, even in places that think they're Christian places. Listen, if you are a truly full-hearted believer in the Bible Belt, there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to hate your guts and persecute you. Many of them may even call themselves Christians. There is nowhere in the world— where a heart as devoted to God as Jesus walks among men who live in the flesh, where that person will not be resented. And resentment shows itself in a thousand ways. No, the, the remedy is not 
that God will not allow things to happen to us. The remedy is, is that the hope is so great that it obliterates by proportion the intensity of my present sufferings under the curse. That, that the Holy Spirit can so apply the reality and truth of our hope in the future glory of God that this groaning will go away that I can be so filled with a glorious hope that no matter how gloomy the tunnel of my present experience, I can keep walking and I can do so in joy. In fact, the word in Romans 5 is in boasting. In boasting. Why boasting? Because in the chapter before it said, a righteousness is given to us in Christ so that no one can boast. Because the normal human identification of who I am and why my life is worthwhile is I'm a good person. Well, if that's your boast, what are you going to do when you face the curse? If you believe there's a God, you're going to say, I'm a good person. This shouldn't be happening to me. This shouldn't be happening to me because I'm a good person because that's my boast. That's who I am. I'm a good person. It's what orders my life. And so if I believe God is out there and I'm a good child, then he must be a good father and he's a lousy provider and protector because he shouldn't let this happen to me. And that's why the Lord says, no, 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 you're actually a terrible person. You deserve all condemnation, but a righteousness is given in Christ that isn't yours, that you can receive, so you can stand righteous before God, but then you can't boast in it because it's a sheer gift to anyone who receives it. Here's your boast. Your boast is in the hope of the glory of God. That's your identity in the curse. In the curse, your boast is, I am heir to the glory that will bury this curse. And the way he argues it is that it's so much bigger than you think. It's all of creation. All of creation. It's not just you. It's not just your problems. Am I, am I, are my problems going to go away someday? Is my life going to get better? Maybe my life will get better if God helps me. No, no. Don't you understand? You are an heir to something as big as all of creation. All creation is subjected to the curse. All creation is awaiting eagerly the revelation of the glory of God. And the way Paul argues it is he says— is he says, they're looking for it in us, in you. Creation looks to the children of God because it, creation knows that when, when the glory is fully revealed in us, when we receive the adoption and sonship, which is the final resurrection of our bodies, the final fullness of our glorification, that in that moment the curse will be over and all of creation will be free. Free into the freedom of the sons of God and free into the glory of God as things should have been in their great flourishing from eternity past. At least since the foundation of the curse because of sin. All right. This was a different way of arguing that. Okay, secondly, the Spirit is our help. The Spirit is our help against the curse's confusion. Right? If gloom makes it hard for us to look to the hope of God in faith, our present groans make it hard to interact with God. How do, if, if, if we've come into a relationship with God and God is the one who is both adjudicating as the judge over the curse and yet is the loving Savior, the mixture of the life around us is so bedevilingly confusing that it's very difficult to know how we should relate to God and what we should say, especially in our pain. I mean, nobody speaks more wrong than people who are angry or in pain. 
and many people who are in pain are also angry, and the curse is the sort of thing that makes the hurting angry, because if you get hurt by something that makes you groan, and you think life shouldn't be this way, that makes you angry. And so you're hurt, and you're angry, and people who are angry do not say sensible things. And so how does one pray under the curse when you feel the angst of the fact that you wish it wasn't like this, and you're hurt by the things that are happening? Right? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit helps us. That's the answer. Right? It says in Romans 26 and 27, in the same way, in the same way that the Spirit helps us in giving us hope, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. She was saying is this thing, that the Spirit helps us. It says twice how he helps us, that the Spirit intercedes for us, but it doesn't actually mean that the Spirit prays for us, right? You would think that if it hadn't literally said wordless groans. You see, the, the impact of the Spirit isn't actually in telling us what to say. The impact of the Spirit is to come to the place, what we call the heart, the seat of our emotional being, and it, he groans there. That is, it's meant to be a play on words, right? Because in in the preceding, in verse 22, creation groans under pain. And in 23, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan awaiting our adoption as sons. There's only one person who groans well, right? There's only one, and that's the, the person of the Spirit. And he comes in to the place where we groan, and he groans. Because the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who ex experienced all of the pain of humanity, comes into us, and he groans as we would groan, fully human, under the curse, knowing the real pain, but groans rightly, truly, laments well in us. So that it is not just in the parroting of certain speech, but in the very seat of who we are, that the Spirit intercedes for us and then helps us to pray. But then also it says, there's a second kind of prayer, right? That is, that God doesn't just hear what we say, but God searches the hearts of men and women. Right? He searches our hearts. He doesn't just hear what we say in prayer. Everything that's in our heart, and whether we put it to death or whether we embrace it, all that goes on within us is like an ongoing ticker tape prayer before God Almighty. He searches the human heart at all moments and knows everything about it. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit's seat at the place of our groaning, at the very place where we accept and reject what's in our being, he orders it according to the will of God and leads us in sanctification, that growth in faith, so that when God searches our hearts, not just listens to our prayers, he finds the Spirit interceding there also, according to the will of God. And part of the reason that's so important is it says, because brothers, don't you know that God is working for the good of all who believe in him and are called according to his purpose, right? We can only participate in that if we embrace the will of God and by the Spirit walk into it. And so we require the Spirit to move us along so that we can cooperate with that will that God is working for our good, which ultimately leads to what does the passage say, right? Those he justified, he also glorified. He says it like it's past tense. That is the end of what the Spirit does to help us. And the way the Spirit points us to that hope leads us into the workings of God for our good, which ultimately leads to what he promised, our glorification. Let me just end with this illustration. 
Um, last night I was trying to write my sermon. I don't know why I try to write sermons at home when I know my kids are going to be there. Only one of my daughters was home, and she, she came into the room kind of rushing. This is, I have quite, this is a very evocatively emotional child of mine. And she said, Daddy, she said, Dad, please slap me across the face so I don't do anything petty. Right, and I was like, I'm being invited to slap her. This is nice. So I got, I got up, and I kind of playfully gave her like a little slap across the face, right? And then she said, okay, now can I have a hug? And so then she hugged me, and she just kind of, she started crying, right? And I just kind of groaned with her, you know? She said some things, and I was like, oh, oh, that feels terrible. feels terrible. And I just kind of let her do that, and it lasted about four minutes. And then she's like, okay, it feels so much better. <laughs> and she, whoop, off she went, you know? I think that's sort of like what it's like. Because she, see, she knew if she came to me, I would accept her groaning, but she wouldn't get lost in it. I'd slap her so she didn't do anything petty, right? She, she wanted someone, she wanted someone to both hold her and hold her to something. See, that's what it means to seek the mind of the Spirit. To go to the one that will hold you, but will also hold you to something. Who won't, who will hold your heart in the will of God. Who will intercede on your behalf with wordless groans, so that you must speak your own words. But he will come and do something in the heart that will allow you to be in the will of God when you do it, and to strengthen you in your weakness. And yet, he will also hold you for comfort's sake, in the groanings of the attacks of the curse, when your heart says the world shouldn't be this way, he will say, I know it should never have been this way. And it will not end this way. So take courage and walk in the way of Christ because if you share in his sufferings, you do it so that you will share in his glory. And that's why— um, in Christ's institution of communion, he said that in taking the bread and the wine, he said, you celebrate my broken body and my shed blood under the curse to destroy the curse, is what he meant. Until he comes, the final glorification of God in the destruction of the curse. So if you have communion elements, why don't you get them? Recognizing that the act of communion, this Lord's table, as it's called, is the participation in believing in Christ, the one who saves us from our sins, justifies us with a new righteousness, gives us the promise of his spirit, reconciles us with the Father, and is the substantiator and firstfruits of our eternal hope of glory. If you're watching and you're not a believer in Christ— um, you shouldn't take communion because it is the act of worshiping Jesus as God. It, it is worship, the worship of God. Um, if you are a believer, then you should receive it because your boast is not in your righteousness. There's no sense in saying, well, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing very well with God. Nobody's doing very well with God, other than that God is making them do well with him because of his love and choice of them, Right? You take it because your boast isn't in your righteousness, but your boast is in the hope of the glory of God. And these are the tokens of such things that we take as a ritual pointing to something greater. So let's pray together, and then I'll read our words of institution, and we'll receive it together. God, as we come 
to communion to the Lord's table, we pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit as we embrace the way of the cross and that Christ laid down his life under the curse to destroy the curse and that you will call us in faith to lay down our lives for our neighbors under the curse to destroy the curse for their redemption and good in order that we may share in your glory. We believe not in the promise that you will protect us from all harm, but in the promise that you will set us free from the bondage to decay and to give us the glorious peace and freedom of the adoption of sons, the resurrection of our bodies, so that we can face everything we face with courage. Amen.